Thank you for tuning in this morning to the worship broadcast of Bowglade Alliance Church. Bowglade Alliance Church is located at 425 East Canal Street North in Bowglade uh, with live worship services every Sunday at 11 a.m. For more information, visit us online at www.bowgladealliance.org. Now let's join Pastor Kevin for this morning's message. If you've been tracking with us over the last several weeks, we have begun our journey of the book of Acts. And so today we arrive at Acts chapter 2, and I just want to take a moment and remind you of some of the highlights, if you will, of chapter 1. So Jesus, having been risen from the dead, uh, spent time with his disciples, teaching them further about the kingdom of God. And just before his ascension to heaven, just before he went back to be with the Father, he told his disciples that they are to remain in Jerusalem and await the gift that he had promised that the Father would send the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was going to come and empower them so that they have the ability to serve as Jesus' witnesses throughout the world, beginning right there in Jerusalem and then to the surrounding regions and the regions beyond to the very ends of the earth. And so we see that they are remaining in Jerusalem. In fact, they're in a house that they were staying at together. Uh, And what we saw last week was that in this interim time, between Jesus' ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit, they restored the 12. So the 12 apostles that Jesus had appointed during his earthly ministry became 11 when Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus. And so we see that they selected by God's guidance, Matthias, to fill that 12th spot, and that's what we focused on last week in our text. And so today we arrive at Acts chapter 2, starting in the first verse. And so if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to Acts chapter 2. And starting in verse 1, it says this, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they've had too much wine. So as we begin together today to examine this text and its implications for us, I want to begin with a statement, and the statement is this. God is a master strategist. God is a master strategist. That might seem strange to think of him in those terms. Perhaps you never have. At least for me, there are a lot of ways to think of God that seem to come more naturally, Uh, It comes naturally to think of God in terms of his creation of the world and to think of him as the one who sustains the world. 
And so thinking of God as creator and sustainer comes quite naturally to me. It's easy to think of him as the one who engages in the world in response to prayer. When specific situations come up that are beyond our capacities to overcome, we pray and we know that God is the one who hears our prayers. And so as opposed to God as a master strategist, God as the hearer and answerer of prayers comes a lot more naturally. It's even easy if you're aware of such promises in Scripture to see God as engaged with you in ministry and as you speak with others about the gospel. We took a look even just recently at passages such as Matthew 28, uh, 20, which says that, which Jesus is speaking, he says, and I will be with you always to the very end of the age. And even Acts 1.8, we saw that it's the Holy Spirit who will come and empower us so that we can then be Christ's witnesses. And so if you're aware of passages such as this, it may come naturally to think of God as the one who's engaged with you in ministry and in mission. However, if I'm being honest, at least for me, it's easy to lack awareness of God's engagement behind the scenes. To think of him perhaps as active when we have not invoked his presence or called upon him for his help. We know that he is active, but we don't tend to think of him in these ways uh, as we go through our day and think of these things. But the fact of the matter is that God is never idle. He's always at work. And while you and I tend to be reactive, God's always intentional. God is always active. Here's what I mean by that. You and I tend to switch into evangelism mode when an opportunity presents itself. For instance, we may not often be looking or making opportunities uh, to share the gospel, but when an opportunity presents itself in the course of a dialogue, then we react to that situation and we go into evangelism mode, if you will. You and I tend to pray for help when a problem arises that we cannot overcome on our own. You know, maybe, maybe our prayer lives are not what they ought to be. They're not what we wish they'd be. But certainly when a situation arises that's beyond our control, we are immediately thrust into a position of prayer. Again, we react. By contrast, God doesn't react. God's always active, always intentional. He knows all things, right? He knows the beginning from the end. And he also knows everything that he must do, everything that he must orchestrate to bring history towards his ends. God is a master strategist. And this is evident in our passage today. Now, sadly, most Christians miss it because they're not aware of the cultural context of these biblical events that we read about. And so our passage begins with six important words that will help us understand today. Here's the six words. When the day of Pentecost came. When the day of Pentecost came. So let's ask the question. What is Pentecost? Now I conducted an experiment this week. I asked seven fellow Christians this question. What is Pentecost? And of the seven people I asked, five of them answered that Pentecost is the day that celebrates the Holy Spirit coming. And two of them didn't know. And so this is what the majority of them associated it with, was that Pentecost was that day in which the Holy Spirit came. And again, two people didn't know. Now, that might be a very small cross-section of uh, the Christian population, but 
I think it's indicative of a couple things, of both the maybe the lack of certainty by some and also that we tend to associate it with the coming of the Holy Spirit. In fact, the liturgical calendar that many churches have used for the well over a thousand years now celebrates Pentecost as part of the church's seven-week Easter celebration in recognition of the Spirit's coming. So even the liturgical calendar, even our, our church tradition on understanding what Pentecost is, it is solely focused on that event of the coming of the Holy Spirit. But there's a problem. What many Christians miss is that Pentecost was not a new holiday that we read about here in the text in Acts chapter 2. It didn't originate in New Testament times. It's not even a particularly Christian event, although certainly what happened at that event is relevant to all Christians, the coming of the Holy Spirit. But rather, Pentecost itself, we see it celebrated throughout Israel's history as the Feast of Weeks or Shavuot. The term Pentecost comes from a Greek word that means 50th, since it was celebrated on the 50th day after Passover as the culmination of this divinely prescribed festival, the Feast of Weeks. In fact, we see it all the way back uh, to the books of Moses. Exodus 34.22, for instance, denotes the Feast of Weeks as one of the three times that the Israelites were required to appear before the Lord. Moses records, celebrate the festival of weeks with the first fruits of the wheat harvest. And so the Israelites, are to, 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 having been blessed by God in their wheat harvest, were to come before him at this time every year to give back to him an offering of wheat for what he has blessed them with. And this was one of those times, one of the three times that the Israelites were required under the law to appear before the Lord in thanksgiving. We see in Deuteronomy 16, 9 through 12, it says this, Count off seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle to the standing grain. Then celebrate the festival of weeks to the Lord your God by giving a free will offering in proportion to the blessings the Lord your God has given you. And rejoice before the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name. You, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, the Levites in your towns, and the foreigners, the fatherless and the widows living among you, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and follow carefully these decrees. Now there's some interesting elements of this particular passage of Deuteronomy because it looks forward to the day when Israel, when the, the people of Israel will be in the land of Israel. It looks forward to the day when Jerusalem will be the city where God's name is, where his temple will be placed. And it looks forward to the Israelites going many, many generations after to celebrate this festival at that place of promise. And if you see here also in this text, everybody is required to come. It doesn't matter who you are, male or female, whether you're a servant, whether you're a son, a daughter, uh, even the Levites who didn't have a place for themselves but ministered throughout the tribes, uh, foreigners who were living in the area, everybody was to do this. And he says, follow carefully these decrees. Interestingly, going on the other side of, of, of history there, Israel's history, after Israel was exiled from the land, even then, when Jews lived throughout the region and not necessarily in a centralized location in the land of Israel, they still kept this 
uh, this feast. M.C. Tenney has written it this way. He says, after the exile, it became one of the great pilgrimage feasts of Judaism, at which many of those who lived in remote sections of the Roman world returned to Jerusalem for worship. For that reason, it served as a bond to unite the Jewish world of the first century and to remind them of their history. And so here you have Jews spread out throughout the Roman Empire, and yet they still come back to Israel at this time for this festival. So why is this important as we examine our text for today? Again, God is a master strategist. You ever ask yourself these questions? Why didn't Jesus just ask the Father to impart the Holy Spirit while he was still with them? Certainly the Father would have the capacity to to send the Holy Spirit at that time, but that's not what Jesus asked him to do. Why was it important that the disciples remain in Jerusalem? I mean, after all, the Spirit could have descended on them anywhere in the world, right? Couldn't the Holy Spirit have come back to, have descended upon them if they went back to Galilee? Or if they had spread out to begin their mission, perhaps. And so they went to the remote parts of the Roman Empire. Couldn't the Holy Spirit have descended upon them there? Why wait in Jerusalem for this gift? Because God was orchestrating the arrival of the Holy Spirit on the day when Jews from around the Roman world would be present in Jerusalem to witness it. He wasn't merely empowering the disciples to be Christ's witnesses, although certainly he did empower them. God himself was testifying to what has been done and what the disciples would proclaim, that the Messiah has come. In fact, this event, which took place on the day of Pentecost, bears a striking resemblance to another time when the power and the presence of God descended visibly. We see it at the dedication of the first temple by Solomon. Solomon had built the temple for God in Jerusalem, and he had a lengthy prayer of dedication to the Lord. And at the end of it, we read this in 2 Chronicles 7, 1 through 3. It says, when Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests cannot enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. When all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground and they worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord. And here in our passage in Acts 2, almost a thousand years later, we see again God's presence, God's spirit descends at Jerusalem with fire to tabernacle with his people and to demonstrate his glory. God is a master strategist, and at just the right time, he demonstrated what he was doing. And just as before, God's ultimate purpose in doing this was to bless his people. Think about some of the correlations here between the first temple and this. The temple existed so that human beings could make atonement for sin and be close to God's presence. And the church exists so that people can dedicate themselves to the one who died to atone for their sins and so that God's presence would be with them in Christ. Again, this isn't accidental. God is a master strategist. We read in our text, Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. 
Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them, and all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So here were the apostles, the twelve, as well as many other disciples, both men and women, including uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. They were in this house that they've been staying in together when suddenly the Holy Spirit descends in a dramatic way. You, you could see it with your eyes. You could hear it with your ears. You could feel it on your skin. Something amazing and, and just broke through and was taking place in their midst. In fact, it was such a tremendous event that even those outside the house, the Jewish travelers that had come from throughout the Roman world to Jerusalem for this festival, they saw it and they heard it even from outside. It drew a crowd to the house and they had to know what on earth was going on. You know, it must have been obvious that this was a supernatural event. Who but God could do such a thing? And what was the meaning of all this? And at this holy time, this must have been what went through their minds because they gathered to figure this out together. Again, reading starting in verse 4, all of them, them being the disciples in the house, were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Not only did God's Spirit descend in dramatic fashion, not only did the disciples receive the empowerment that they had been promised in order to testify about Jesus, but the Spirit enabled them to proclaim the wonders of God in the languages and dialects that they didn't know but the languages and dialects that were spoken and heard and understood by all of these travelers, all of these Jews from around the world who were there in Jerusalem at the time. As the disciples came out of the house and encountered the crowds that were forming, they were speaking in the various languages and dialects of every foreign nation, region, city, and town from which these Jews had traveled to be in Jerusalem for the festival. And remember, long since gone were the days when all the Jews lived in Israel and spoke Hebrew. Ever since the exiles of the northern and southern kingdoms in 722 B.C. and 586 B.C., things had largely changed for the Jewish people. In fact, even those living in Israel, different regions favored different languages. For instance, there were regions that favored Aramaic as the primary language. There were other regions that favored Greek. And Jews that lived outside of the boundaries of Israel... They had innumerable primary languages and dialects, depending on where they were hailing from. And yet in this moment, 
when Jews from around the world were in one place, God, the master strategist, had a plan in place to expose the world to the gospel before even one of the apostles had a chance to leave Jerusalem. God was already proclaiming the gospel in what he was doing right here as he brought the world to them. Did you know that many scholars believe that the church at Rome, that same church that Paul wrote to in the epistle to the Romans, wasn't planted by Paul. In fact, it wasn't planted by any apostle. It's largely believed that Jews from Rome who were in Jerusalem right here at Pentecost heard the gospel, committed their lives to Jesus the Messiah, and then went back to Rome to make disciples and to plant the church. In fact, if you think about it, most, if not all of these people, went back to their homes, proclaiming the good news of Jesus to others. God is a master strategist, and he did a pretty neat thing that we read about here in this passage. As I stated when we began our study of Acts, remember, this is not the story of what the disciples went and did for Jesus. This is the continued story of Jesus Christ and his ministry. There is no sense in which this book is about what the disciples went and did for God. This is a book about what God did, including that which he did through his disciples. And so for us here today, we also are not called to go and build a kingdom for God, but we are called to allow him to continue to build his kingdom through us. And so to that end, there are a few things I want us to grab hold of today from our text. And the first one is this. Everything we are called to do must be done in God's power. I'll say that again. Everything we are called to do must be done in God's power. There's a belief in our culture that each one should pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. And that's to say that we should do for ourselves without any outside help. Interestingly, it's physically impossible to literally pull oneself up by their bootstraps. In fact, that was the original meaning of that expression. That someone was attempting to do something absurd, something impossible, something ridiculous. And yet we've embraced it in a different way, this saying, because we value autonomy. We as a people, as a society, we value independence. We place too much trust in our own abilities. Our pride doesn't even allow us to ask for help. And if you don't believe me, wives, think about how many times your husband does not stop and ask for directions. You know, we love our ever-growing DIY culture, our do-it-yourself culture. The problem is we are not capable of doing the things that God has called us to do apart from him. Now, we saw Acts 1-8 together as we went through that book, that chapter. And Jesus does not say this in Acts 1-8. He does not say, go and be my witnesses at Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And if you need a little help, let me know. That's not what Jesus says. Instead, he says this in Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He had to empower us in order to do what we are called to. Whether we're sharing the gospel with a friend over coffee or visiting a foreign mission field, we need the power of God's Spirit to be effective in that endeavor. We cannot do what God has called us to do in our own power. 
as Paul even recounts his mission among the Corinthians, he writes this in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. Here's what he says as he recounts when he was first among them proclaiming the gospel. He says, and so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Now one might read that and think, wait a minute. Paul was well-educated. Paul was well-spoken. In fact, if you read any of his epistles, you could see that. He reasoned with people. He persuaded people. He even argued. We see that in the book of Acts. Yeah, but here he makes it clear that in proclaiming the gospel, it was the Spirit who was at work, the Spirit behind his words, the Spirit working in people's hearts, the Spirit who brought the harvest. It wasn't Paul. And so outwardly, perhaps, you may recognize some of, some of those things about Paul, but it wasn't his power. It was the Spirit's power at work in him. Even someone as gifted as Paul recognized that it wasn't him, but God at work in the mission. Friends, whether it's ministry, mission, or even those, those personal discipleship focuses like our sanctification, our spiritual growth, it is always God's power that enables us to do what he calls us to do. We cannot do it apart from him. It is God's power that enables us to do what he calls us to do. And so we need to recognize this. And we need to repent of our tendencies to do what God calls us to do in our own strength. And perhaps we need to repent of our tendencies not to engage in what God has called us to do by your power or God's power. And so perhaps for some of us, this is the challenge. And so that leads me to our next challenge. We must be obedient to what God calls us to do. We must. We have no choice. We must be obedient to what God calls us to do. Remember who we're reading about here in this passage today. Remember who these people were. These were Jesus' followers. The same Jesus who was arrested and condemned by the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And these were the same disciples that were hiding out for fear of the religious leaders because they could very well have faced the same condemnation that Jesus faced. And so here we see them out engaging crowds in the middle of Jerusalem, the city where Jesus was just recently condemned, and they're proclaiming the wonders of God. What has changed? Yes, the Holy Spirit came on them, absolutely, but in terms of their context, in terms of the risks, what has changed? Absolutely nothing. The same risks applied for them on this day that it did 24 hours ago. However, they knew what they were called to do. They stepped out boldly from the house and engaged with the crowds. They boldly and publicly proclaimed the wonders of God before others in Jerusalem. You know, Jesus spoke to them about this uh, earlier on in his ministry. We read this in Luke 12, 4 through 12. He says this, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you to whom you should fear. 
Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth much more than sparrows. I tell you, whoever publicly acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But whoever disowns me before others will be disowned before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. When you are brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. You know, Jesus' warnings were definitely very relevant when you consider what the disciples faced and will continue to face throughout their ministry for Jesus, because they will face persecution. Many of them will actually give their very lives in, uh, for, for Jesus and for the expansion of the kingdom and for the spread of the gospel. And Jesus knows that the tendency of, a, of, of humanity is to avoid that risk of being put to death, to avoid those conflicts, uh, to preserve one's own life. And Jesus is saying, don't be afraid of preserving your own life. Don't be afraid of losing your life. Don't be afraid of those who could take your life because at the end of the day, that's all they could do. Instead, fear God. And friends, I know, most Christians I know live as though they are afraid of those who kill the body and after that could do no more. I want to say that again. Let that register with you if this is you today. Friends, most Christians I know live as though they are afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. Actually, the worst part is most Christians I know have never been in a position where their lives were at stake at all for the gospel. In fact, they have lived as though they were afraid of those who could make you feel embarrassed or afraid of those who might not be your friends anymore if you speak the gospel or afraid of those who might pass you up for a promotion or some other such nonsense. And Jesus' warning is important to us. We need to fear, to revere, to respect, to honor God. We need to realize that no one holds power over us but him. We're not called to please anyone but him. No one and nothing matters in comparison to him. And I truly believe we need to heed his warning about those who deny him before men. Now, maybe we've never been questioned about our allegiance. Maybe we've never had the opportunity to even deny Jesus when asked directly. However, many, how many times have we had the opportunity to proclaim Jesus or to testify about him, to share the gospel, but we chose not to? How many of us uh, has that become the norm for? How many of us never even think about sharing the gospel as we go through our day or our weeks or our months or our years? When was the last time you actively and intentionally shared the gospel with somebody else? Friends, I say this with more love for you than you could know, and I say this also in humility, knowing, that, knowing full well that I have not been as obedient as I should in this. But this is unacceptable for all of us, and we need to do much, much better. And thankfully, God forgives, and thankfully, today is a new day, and yet the task remains, and we need to own it. Remember, we have a God who is a master strategist. 
He brought Jesus at just the right time. Think about this. He brought Jesus at just the right time when the Greek language united most of the known world. When the Roman roads made paths for the gospel that did not exist previously. He sent the Holy Spirit, as we see here in this text, when he knew that Jews from around the world would be gathered in Jerusalem to hear and to respond to the gospel, who in turn would take the gospel back to their respective neighborhoods, cities, and countries. We serve a God who has you and me exactly where we need to be to further the kingdom in the ways that he has called us to. We also have a God who is on mission. Again, he isn't relaxing on his heavenly throne while we do all the work down here. God is on mission. He always has been. He always will be. And he invites us. He commands us to join him in what he is doing. And what a great privilege that is. And he has empowered us for the mission. He's given us his Holy Spirit who works in us, who works through us, who prepares the way for the gospel. And friends, we have his presence. We have his partnership. And we have his love as we live out obedience to him in his power.